Midditch Chakraborty. This week, the pound continues to plunge as fears grow over a hung parliament. Speaking of which, we've just weeks to go before a general election. Are we any clearer to knowing anything about George Osborne's economic policies? And away from politics and over in New York, we hear about some of the knock-on effects from the collapse of Lehman Brothers. This is The Business from The Guardian. Well, the BBC's new music station Six Music fell foul of the executions act this week. But here in the pod, we have a couple of rock and rolling business types to help see the pain. Heather Stewart's The Observer's economics editor. And Heather, a few weeks ago, you outed yourself as having bought a half man, half biscuit. I can't, I can't believe you're going to bring that up again. <laughs> what have you bought recently? What other musical <laughs> transgression have you committed recently? Do you know, I, I can't. Last night I went to see. Um, the London Symphony Orchestra uh, uh, with Nitin Sawney doing doing the soundtrack to a 30s Japanese film. But I, I can't even begin to tell you how much sadder that makes me. Only, only, <laughs> only an observer. I'm afraid so. <laughs> Sorry about that. Also here in the pod is Nick Cohen, columnist for The Observer. Nick, top, he- top heavers... Uh musical transgressions oh no it's uh, perhaps they're so bad they'll be fashionable again uh i downloaded some electric light orchestra on itunes wow. which one uh oh sweet talking woman God. you weren't even <laughs> born when it no, came out I wasn't. but that's the joy of the internet <laughs> well uh, no uh, that's open to dispute i'll say <laughs> well dodgy musical taste aside we're going to start this week with the even dodgier state of our currency this is the business with Aditya Chakraborty. The recession's meant that the pound's taken a real battering over the past year, and now the prospect of a hung parliament seems to have weakened it still further. Sterling fell more than four cents against the dollar earlier this week when it dropped to a 10-month low of $1.47. International investors are apparently worried that without a clear majority at the next election, it'd be harder for any government to cut the budget deficit effectively. So, Heather, is this just a wobble, or is things more serious than, than that? Well, I think it's a wobble that will probably continue um, from now until polling day, really, or, or, or until long enough after polling day for us to get a clearer picture of what's going on. Foreign exchange markets hate uncertainty. Um, and, you know, we don't have particularly clear spending plans, to be honest, from either party about how exactly they're going to go about dealing with the deficit. And so I think we're, we're likely to see, uh, you know, a, a kind of prolonged wobble for, for a few weeks yet. Um, that doesn't mean I don't think that, that we're inevitably going to have you know, quotes a sterling crisis, which will, which will, you know, drive us much further down. I, I actually think, even if we get a hung parliament, that there is some evidence internationally that that, you know, you'd get a kind of national government feeling. There's there's cross party consensus that that the deficit needs to be dealt with, and actually, you know, perhaps it would be easier if you had buy in from across the political spectrum. So, you know, even a hung parliament might not be the disaster that the foreign exchange markets think it would be, but they hate uncertainty. So, for the time being, things are going to look wobbly. I think. And do you really think it's the politics that's doing this to the pound, or is it just the fact that the economy seems to be taking another turn down? I think it's both. I mean, I, I, actually, I think what what caused Monday's wobble, um, as much as anything else, was a huge deal that's, that's taking place. Prudential, that the UK insurer is, is buying to expand into Asia. Yeah, yeah, buying an enormous company in Asia, um, and the assumption is, in order to do that, it'll have to sell some pounds and buy some some you know some other currency, probably dollars, because um, it's an American company. And and our stock markets are very much linked. Do- dollar sterling often moves 
tracks the FTSE pretty well. So um, I think that that as much as anything else. And we've also had a, a series of very wobbly data, which has suggested that although mortgage we, we, approvals and all the rest of it, yes, yeah. although we came out of recession in the last quarter of, of of last year, it's not impossible we could be back in recession in the current quarter. So that that's making people nervous too. I think Nick, what Heather's done there, she's given us quite a nuanced picture. There's a bit of corporate news, there's a bit oh. of economic news, and there's kind of a political background. Explain to me why the papers are so keen immediately to draw the lesson that the pound's fall means that Labour will be bad for Britain. Well, they're not quite saying, well, Conservative papers are. They're not quite saying that. They're saying a hung parliament's bad for Britain. But to defend the papers, which we work for after all, uh, the devaluation we've had so far, you can, you can see, and most people saw, as really quite benign. You know, it's the one good thing that happens after the crash. It's pound devalues and possibly exporters get a bit of help, although quite where that export-led growth is, uh, 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 well, it's materialised or not, is another matter. It, it, for, for all Heather's nuances, it is possible to see in the next few weeks or few months a political sterling crisis rather than an economic one. And, and um, I don't think the papers... You know, however much some writers might have malign intent towards Labour, I don't think the papers are entirely being hysterical in, in seeing that because because the scale of the cuts... I mean, people talk about cross-party consensus. Now, the scale of the cuts, that, if you look at what Alistair Darling was putting out in his autumn statement, are extraordinary. It's something we've never attempted before, four or five years of cuts, of real of real cuts. Uh, we didn't have that under factor or anything like it under factor. I think have, I think... Public spending, there was never you when public spending actually fell. That's right. Now, now the political will to do that has, you know, you've got to question what the political will, sir. I mean, you can see even in your own introduction, you start talking about BBC Sticks, a station I'd never even heard of until two days ago. <laughs> you know, that being closed. And then there's That's massive protest about it. Yeah. That's what it's going to be like yeah. all the yeah. time, politically, yeah. having to deal yeah. with that. Just explain to you what a political sterling crisis means. Well, you, you have the pound driven down by fears about, about what's going to happen in the election. Uh, fears which the polls all over the place and uh, very unreliable measures incidentally opinion polls um, you, know, you can see that building in the next few months uh, you, know, you can see instead of being driven by the economics it's being it's being driven by uncertainty about the next government Vince or George or Alistair who's going to be in charge yeah, of, yeah. Uh, or, or some sort of pick and mixer for free Ed Balls perhaps oh us. <laughs> And hot for, coming hot foot into studio is Dan Roberts, head of business, who I understand you're late because you've been selling the pound avidly on foreign exchanges. Yeah, we've been talking it down all afternoon to see if we can create a story and it hasn't happened. It's been pretty quiet out there today. It's all calmed down and the bonds are still selling. I mean, one of the stories we're doing at the moment is there was a guilty government, auction today. There's a government, government bond bonds. auction in the morning. Yeah, and guess what? It was two times oversubscribed, you know, so they were queuing up twice around the block to buy government debt. Now, okay, the price was a bit higher than they were offering a few months ago while they were still printing money, and, um, but, you know, it, it, it's not panic stations. And I think the really interesting thing is that we've got to keep reminding people that the thing that matters is can you fund the deficit? And you fund the deficit through guilt auctions. All the time you're continuing to do that, the rest of it is just noise. But there is a real issue that one day there may be a guilt strike and then you have got a problem, then you are Greece. Um, the, the tightrope we're all treading is between not going for the scaremongering that says we're already there yet, it's all doomed, run for the hills, because we're so clearly not, but also not getting complacent about the fact that we do need market um, confidence and that we do need these guilt auctions to work, otherwise we've got a problem. And, and that's why I, that's my, my mission in life at the moment, is to try and straddle that. Uh, I think everything is getting politicised, as you say. Heather, we normally think of a weak pound as being excellent news for exporters 
there is a flip side, which is it could lead to high inflation, things like oil and food. How worried are you about that? Um, like Mervyn King, really, I, I, I find it hard to get too worried about inflation in an economy which it seems to me is still extremely weak, where, you know, wage bargaining is very weak because unemployment is so high, where demand is very weak. I, I think, you know, yes, OK, it might be a problem a while down the line, but I don't think it's something we need to be desperately worried about yet. I mean, the other point I'd make about this is that in order to have a sterling crisis, you have to have a crisis against someone. You have to have it has to be you have to be having a crisis against the dollar or against the euro. And they all against, look pretty ropey at the moment, don't they? You know, yeah. the, the US has vast deficits that they seem to have, you know, very little plan to deal with, no credible plan to deal with. Yes, OK, you know, they're a very big economy, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's not impossible that, you know, there are traders out there predicting that people could really be losing confidence in the dollar by the time we get to the autumn and people are wondering what's going to happen in the November midterms and whether there's going to be a credible plan there to deal with things. You know, the Eurozone has got Greece, uh, you know, and a whole list of other countries queuing up. So, you know, we we do have our problems, but we're not alone. And, and, you know, in order to sell sterling, you've got to buy something else. And the question would be what? We hinted at it in our previous discussion, but let's turn our focus now to the Conservatives and their economic policy, or lack thereof, writes subversive producer Ben Green. We're, of course, no more than six weeks away from going to the polls, and still little is known about what Shadow Chancellor George Osborne has up his sleeve should he take up residence at number 11. And if you don't believe me, here's Mr Osborne himself speaking to the BBC's Andrew Marr. Whoever wins this election is going to have to deal with Gordon Brown's debt. So that's not the real choice at the election. The choice is whether people are going to be straight with you about how we deal with that problem. The second thing I'd say is we have set out some specific examples of things we will do. But what I want to... That's not, as you know, that's not my question. but, But Andrew, you know, really to ask me to set out a draft budget when I haven't seen the figures, when I haven't got accurate growth figures from an independent office for budget responsibility, when I haven't had the conversation with the Bank of England about what monetary policy Mm. can do so that we can keep interest rates low for longer, that would be irresponsible and I'm not going to do that. The right thing to do is to set out your values, set out the clear choice in this election between a Labour Party that is doing nothing and has delivered this economic mess and a Conservative Party that is going to keep people's mortgage rates low for longer and boost enterprise and create jobs, set out those values and then ask the public to say, who do you trust to deliver the change that we want to see in our country? Sure. Alistair Darling says that he is going to cut the deficit in half in four years. Right? Yeah, but what, my question to you is, you say, and let's be clear about this, that you are going to go faster further. And all I'm asking is to give people some idea of how much faster and how much well, further. First of all, we have said we will make a start in 2010 because I think it beggars belief that you would... So what kind well, of well, start? Hold on. You, you beggars belief that you would elect a government in April or March mm. or mm. May this year and that they would then wait until April 2011 before taking action on this massive challenge that Britain has that threatens our credit rating, that is deterring international investment into our country. Of course we will make a start, but we will do so in coordination with the Bank of England so that interest rates stay lower for longer. And that is the greatest stimulating effect you can have in a recovery. But every Conservative commentator, pretty much, um, the Telegraph leader this week again, are saying we need more specifics. You need to be clearer. You need to be 
absolutely tough and you need to be well, crystal clear and you're not being well first of all i would argue i have been clear and tough about the choices we face uh, i have In set out, i have set out a framework for uh, a yeah. new economic model where we move this economy from one built on debt to one where we save and invest, that we have a vision for the future of the British economy where we make things again in this country, where we have a more balanced economy, where we don't hitch all of our fortunes onto the back of the Bank of England. Mm. Now, frankly, you don't get any of that from Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling. And now people know in this election there is a choice. And they can ask everything They're from just the most... are not sure well, exactly how big a choice it is because you well, won't tell us. They, they know that the Conservatives are setting out the case for change in our economy as for the, the case for change, mm. as well as the case for change in our society. Yesterday, People you... know, I mean, the, the one Sorry. thing that is absolutely consistent at the moment is that people out there looking for work, the small business struggling, the family that sees yeah. their living standards fall at the moment, yeah, they want change in this economy. They want an economy that works for them. They want a Britain that works for them. And a Conservative government will deliver that change. So where do we start with Rosponomics, Heather? I mean, what, how much do we actually know? There, there is I'm not saying to Annie Marr, well, actually, I've given you as much detail as I possibly can. How much should we catch him a break for saying, well, you know, there's only so much he can say in, in a very uncertain economic climate? How much should we say, well, if you talk tough about cutting deficit, you've got to show us lots and lots of examples? Well, the, the political problem is that neither party has... A, much incentive at the moment to give us very much detail. So, you know, most analysts and in fact a lot of officials at the Treasury quietly think that whichever party gets in, for example, VAT will be going up Mm. quite soon after an election. You know, they're they're busily squirrelling away writing up the the plan so they're ready for whoever gets in, but neither party has any incentive to say anything about that. Um, But at the moment, you know, we don't have a proper sense of... Oswald's central point is that he will cut the deficit faster than Darling, which as Nick pointed out earlier... You know, Darling's plans already have spending tighter than during the Thatcher years. Mm. But what we don't know is how they will go about it. And that's that's very much they've made that the centrepiece of their economic policy. It, it pretty much is their economic policy. And yet, you know, we, we don't know how they would go about it, which departments would suffer, which would be protected and, and so on. And let's just pick up a strand from the earlier conversation. The economy looks like it's weakening. And we're coming to the end of quantitative easing. We're certainly coming to the end of all the fiscal stimulus. Mm. Um, and... What evidence do we get that actually cutting spending right now would actually push the economy back into a much more severe recession than the one we've just been through? Well, there certainly is a risk of that because what you would normally try and do if you've got a big deficit to deal with, um, either you try and kickstart some pretty rapid growth, which is quite hard to do if you're withdrawing the, the emergency support measures, which, as you say, you know, we are, or you would try and offset that using monetary policy. Well, you know, interest rates are already pretty much as low as they can go. You know, quantitative easing, the bank could do a little bit more, but, but you know, it's, it doesn't seem inclined to. It doesn't seem inclined to, or at least certain members of the MPC don't seem inclined to. So they've really unleashed all the monetary policy weapons they can. Mm. So the worry would be that you take away one of the key supports for the economy, public spending, at a time when it's still very, very weak. Nick, isn't this a case of politics and economics diverging? The economic case would seem to be that actually you keep on spending right now, especially when the economy is so weak. But politically, a government that takes over, a new government that comes in, let's say David Cameron for sake of argument, well, really, he's got to try and sort of use his newfound political capital up front. So he's got to try and do his spending cuts right at the start of, his, of taking power. The difficulty is this, is where is growth in the British economy going to come from? It, it, 
you know, it's not coming from consumers. We were, we were at, at the height of the bubble, more heavily indebted than the Americans. We're all sitting here watching our Michael Moore films going on about stupid white men and gas guzzling and credit cards max house. We were worse. So it's not going to come from consumers who are paying off debt. We were talking earlier about the low pound. British exporters, well, it doesn't be much of an export-led recovery. We've got no one to export to. Um, so what do you do? Do you cut, do you cut public spending? I mean, as a sort of Keynesian, I would say no. But there is a, there is a you know the argument that Dan was 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 alluding to that we that we could have a guilt strike. So I mean, it's it, I feel really sorry. I, I became very good friends with Alistair Darling on the simple principle that anyone who took over the treasury after Gordon Brown, you've got to love, you've got to hug, you've got to keep them away from sharp objects and cliff edges. You know they need your support. I would even feel sorry for George Osborne because. The options, the options, they all, they all look universally dreadful, really. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't know if Dan Hever agrees. This has been the funniest ex- recession I've lived through in that the figures are dreadful. But actually the suffering in the country hasn't been so bad. And so you've got this awful feeling in your back of the head that the, the doom is, that the worst is still to come. Dan? Uh, well, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that the gap in the political sort of um, uh, landscape at the moment is somebody who can offer a positive thesis for where the growth could and should come from. And I think what uh, what Osborne has got himself trapped into is a sort of it, it, it just beating up on the public sector isn't going to win them an election. Nobody, nobody. It's not not a very popular thing to, to do. And even if he was entirely right. Um, which um, I don't think he is, but you, you'd need to offer an alternative. And I think the, alter- the alternative, which is natural for the Tories to do, but they seem to be missing at the moment, is to sort of try and say where you think the private sector growth is going to come from. Which of the industries of tomorrow should we be pushing? Where is the export-led growth? Which high-tech sectors should we be backing as a nation? Where is the sort of, you know, to, to repeat all the sort of the, 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 the sound bites of the last 20 years, but where is the no- new knowledge economy or mm. the, uh, 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 um, the, the, that we're going to have to rely on more and more? And you would uh, you would expect a, a Tory chancellor to be uh, to be setting out a new vision for for the British economy. And in fact, all he's doing is knocking the existing one, which resonates to a point. But I don't think he's going to win them an election. And and that's what I sort of feel as a big gap in the market at the moment. We're all we, we have we, the turbocharged sort of un, unregulated city-led capitalism that got us into this problem is is largely discredited and no one is filling a vacuum of what an alternate vision of private sector growth should look like nick that's historically odd because we've been through two big capitalist crises in the 20th century Mm. 1930s and 1970s and each time it was a conservative government that came along and actually got involved in reshaping capitalism Mm. so in 1930s you had this move towards protectionism under the conservative party in 1980s we had telsid we had right to buy capital housing and all the rest of it they each time the conservatives came in with a program of ideas oh, they're yes. willing, pu- willing to push in and yet as dan says there seems to be a vacuum this time around. well uh, factorism has sort of uh trapped the tory party uh and and trapped conservative thinking what dan was describing was a perfectly sensible and more and more to the point uh perfectly conceivable program for continental christian democrats for uh merkel or, or for sarkozy but within modern conservative thinking indeed if you go back two years within new labor thinking that that sounds incredible not just incredibly radical but things we don't even talk about about identifying key industries about finding national champions uh about the government thinking about you know picking winners if you like mm. um uh, and british economic force on left and right 
and British political thought on left and right just hasn't been thinking that way. And that's what gives this election such a weird feeling mm. about it. There is no one coming forward, as the Thatcherites came forward in the late 1970s, and even say, this is what we think is wrong with Britain, this is what we're going to do about it. Now, even if you did, as I did, and I'm sure young Dan did, violently disagreed with them, at least there was something to disagree with. Mm. There doesn't seem to be a figure in Britain at the moment, politically, just saying... Like it or lump it, we have a programme. Surely, Heather, we have got that person. He's called Vince Cable. <laughs> well, um... Surely the answer is a coalition Only government. on the Guardian <laughs> can you get away yeah. with saying that. <laughs> it's certainly true that, that, that uh, uh, you know, Cable's shown a very good and very shrewd analysis of the problem and the crisis all the way through. He was very early to, to spot the fact that there was a, we had a lending problem, we had a lending bubble, which no, no other party would admit at the time. Um, how comprehensive his programme is for a different kind of economy, I'd be a little bit more sceptical about that. He certainly, um, the Lib Dems have some, some you know, pretty detailed plans on making the tax system fairer, for example. But in terms of generating growth, I'm not sure how much more detail they have, uh, you know, than the Tories, to be honest. OK, and here's a more serious question. Mm. All the stuff that Dan and Nick are talking about, about needing to think about a new growth model and all the rest of it, mm. the reason why we can't actually get to that within modern political debate is because economically we keep being told that actually the big priorities are keep down debt and, def- and deficit. Whereas actually what you're talking about, but from both of these guys, is actually a huge amount more government spending to nurture new industries. Yeah. And that's why we can't talk about a new growth model. That's the problem. And actually, when, you know, Osborne has talked a bit about the kind of economy he would like to see. You know, he's talked about rebalancing, for example, away from um, too much consumption towards more saving and away from, you know, too too much sort of domestic dominated economy towards more exports and so on. But then when it comes to the content of how you would do that on the kinds of industries that we're talking about, let alone the, the measures that you would try and bring about, there's no detail there, partly because there's no money, because, you know, I mean, Nick's right, they've boxed themselves into a corner, in a sense, because they've made this their central issue, this this deficit issue, and then that leaves you very little scope for, for, for making any argument other than, you know, we've got to do this and we've got to do it now, and, we'll, you know, my cuts are bigger than your cuts. And finally this week, to New York, where our Wall Street correspondent, Andrew Clark, has been looking into some of the unforeseen consequences of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. As he explained to our producer, Ben Green, nightlife around Manhattan's financial hub just isn't the same without those bankers in town. Well, indeed, there are many victims of the uh, collapse of Lehman Brothers, and one of the less noticed ones is a nightclub just around the corner from Lehman Brothers' office called uh, the China Club, uh, which is just uh, a couple of blocks away from Times Square, and it describes itself as a high-intensity nightclubber's paradise. Um, and the China Club filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in New York uh, last week, saying that uh, its business had been hit by the overall downturn in, econ- in the economy, but particularly badly compounded by layoffs at Lehman Brothers because, according to an affidavit from the club's owner, many of Lehman's employees were regular customers at the club. So the China Club's struggling to make ends meet without those high-earning investment bankers. And just coincidentally, a couple of blocks further down, another club's gone bust. This one's a bit more risque. It's called Cheetahs, and it's a lap-dancing club known for serving sushi on the bodies of partially naked women. So two clubs down the drain in one week, and Lehman Brothers possibly partly to blame. And what about um, other 
night spots or, or perhaps restaurants because uh, obviously these bankers can splash a lot on uh, on expensive bottles of wine and champagne and they're they're pretty good with the tips too well indeed and of course in in, in new york you're expected to tip at least at least 15 percent and we're hearing anecdotal tales of waiters and serving staff um feeling the pinch around the city because those more generous tips haven't been forthcoming it is noticeable in manhattan that probably similarly to in london that, that, that we've seen a lot of uh shop facades closed down my local pizza place has gone down the drain which is uh, obviously a very distressing uh, outcome of the recession for me and really it's a, it's a city that's that's feeling a pinch just at the moment um one group who aren't feeling it quite so badly are taxi drivers because oddly enough uh, the mayor of new york insisted last year on on installing electronic card readers in every taxi um, and those give you a, a press button option of how much of a tip you want to leave and the minimum tip that you can leave on them is 15%. So taxi drivers are actually enjoying an upturn in tippage while everyone else is suffering a little bit. That's all for this week. There are links to all of our topics on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And if you want to give your feedback on anything you've just heard, leave a comment there too. I'm Edith Chakraborty and that was The Business.